Support for On Being with Krista Tippett comes from the Fetzer Institute, helping build the spiritual foundation for a loving world. Fetzer's new study, What Does Spirituality Mean to Us?, reveals how spirituality informs our understanding of ourselves and each other and inspires us to take action for the common good. Explore these findings and more at spiritualitystudy.org. I'm Krista Tippett. Up next, my unedited conversation with writer Catherine May on wintering, a season in nature, but also a state of mind and a season in life. There is, as always, a shorter produced version of this wherever you found this podcast. Hello, everyone. Hi. 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 So, Catherine, I hear you. Welcome. Hello. Good. Hi. Thank you for having me. It's very exciting. Um, I, I have to say to you and everybody else, we have a little wintering situation going on in this impromptu basement studio we created in 2020 because I have a very cold basement and and suddenly so anyway I have a blanket with me (laughs) gosh it's that cold wow have you got snow well we're well we're you know we're very far north we're up close to Canada um and uh and we like cold and we're hardy um (laughs) <laughs> we we don't actually the terrible thing this year is that we don't have snow but we do have cold. Oh, no. We usually have yeah. snow that stays on the ground and um but it is it's you know it's in the 20s. Um right. And so it's it's really Yeah, chilly. and I just yeah. and I actually like our cold bedroom and basement so I this is mm. never a problem. And it's not going to be a problem either cuz I brought my blanket. <laughs> But it's it's because I my heating broke down last week and it's sitting still like when you're doing things like podcasts. Yeah, exactly. And after that, while you get quite shivery. Don't yeah. You? Well, and the other thing is we take we I have to turn the heating off in my house when we record like this because the heating is noisy um, for mm. our sensitive sensitive technological purposes. <laughs> but I'm sure Everything I will become so engrossed in the conversation that I won't even notice. <laughs> You'll be. We'll warm you up somehow. Yeah. <laughs> Um, anything, um, anything you guys need from me before we start? Okay. And Catherine, do you have a a copy of your book with you? I do. Great. Right by my side. Okay, wonderful. I I have, obviously, I think the American edition, so we may have to figure out page numbers. No, no, I I have the American edition. Oh, you do? Great. Yeah, yeah. Don't worry. You're a pro. Okay. (laughs) All right. Oh, I've made that mistake before. All right. (laughs) Oh, that's great. Um, Well, thank you. It's, um, I have to say that just when I, uh, we we had actually asked um, our listeners on social media what, what voices they were listening to or 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 feeling supported by now uh, feeling nourished by or what they'd like to what they'd like to hear and somebody mentioned your book and then oh, and you they mentioned you and wintering and um and when I looked it up, I realized this is exactly the conversation I need to have right now, too. So selfishly, <laughs> we are oh, jumping on this. No, well, yeah. very, it's lo- that's so lovely to be recommended as well. Yeah. That's a really lovely feeling. Thank yeah. you. Um, where, where did you grow up? Uh, I, the same place as I live now, the north north of Kent in the UK. So um, I've I've not moved very far, really. Mm-hmm. Um, so describe where, where, you, where you are in the UK, kind of. 
So mm. I am in Whitstable, in mm-hmm. the very far southeast tip of the of England. Right. Uh, it's a little Victorian seaside town. Mm. Uh, we still have a working harbour, but it's also a very kind of creative, artistic town too. Right. So there's lots of of media folk and artists and writers. Actually, I think I'm. There's four writers on my street alone, which is it always makes me laugh. We're in slight competition with each other, obviously. <laughs> <Right>. <laughs> Got it. Because writers can't <laughs> stop, you know. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> um, and, you know, the, t- the title of, of your book, of your newest book, um, is Wintering the Power of Rest and Retreat in Difficult Times. And, you know, I thought it might be interesting to ask you if you cast your mind, because I started thinking about this reading you, I, it, to cast your mind back to... How were rest and retreat experiences you had in your childhood or didn't? Mm-hmm. <laughs> what did you learn about those things, either actively or from what you saw around you? Mm, that's a really interesting question. I'm not sure if I'd have thought about those things very much as a child in a way. I, I had a very quiet childhood. Mm-hmm. I grew up in uh, what we'd call a council estate. I think you guys would call it the projects or whatever, like a yeah. state-owned housing. Um, and my mother was not very keen on leaving the house. She was agoraphobic. And I found my childhood very boring, actually. We were always stuck inside. I was always asking to go out to different places and... The only places we were really able to go to was to my grandparents' house, which I loved, and to the supermarket on a Friday. <laughs> that was like that was the extent of the excitement. So actually, in lots of ways, it was enforced retreat for me as a child. Right. There wasn't the opportunities that I wanted to have to get out into the world and to see it, really. Mm-hmm. But rest, I don't know if we thought about it much. I'm not sure if we had a hectic enough life to to think about rest. It became more relevant to me as a teenager when I um, got the symptoms of ME uh, after kind of really burning out at school. And then I had to learn to really just sit still for a very long time, just not move uh, to manage my sort of pain and exhaustion. Um, And I guess that's when I began to learn to rest, but only in a very frustrated way right right yeah <laughs> was there was there at all a spiritual or, or religious tradition in that background of your childhood there was none at all in fact mm-hmm. actually there was almost the opposite of that a kind of antipathy towards not only you know any particular religion but also towards the idea of uh i don't know ritual or belief mm. or anything that was seen as a little bit too fancy mm-hmm. um I always make the joke, but I think I think it's probably true that I don't have a middle name because that was seen as a bit too much in my family. Like nobody has a middle name. <laughs> okay, got it. So that, that's the baseline. We have we're a minimalist <laughs> sensibility. <laughs> yeah, yeah, but I um, I was a I went to church schools and I was a member of the Brownies um, and I used to absolutely love going to church. Funnily enough, um, I loved the singing as much as anything else, but I really liked the sense of ritual and the the sense Mm. of of stuff happening um and by the time I was at university I became a chorister again the only non-practicing Christian chorister in the in the chapel choir but um but actually you know I I loved that peaceful time in chapel three times a week while we sang Mm. um so I suppose I've I've always been slightly drawn to it but it's certainly not part of my background though right 
I, I do feel some of those impulses um, kind of surface, right, in, in, this, in this investigation you've done um, in how you live, yeah. um, this idea of wintering, um, which, by which you're talking about um, all at once, c- certainly the season, the rhythms of the natural world, and the rhythm, rhythms of the needs of our bodies, um, but also seasons and rhythms of a life, right? Mm. So, mm. Uh, and so I want to, I want to, you know, talk to you about all of that and what you've learned through exploring it. I mean, you do begin um, the your book wintering with the sentence, "Some winters happen in the sun," <laughs> mm. <laughs> and you begin with a blazing day in early September. Yeah. Yeah, I thought that was really important, actually. I wanted to make it really clear that although a lot of wintering is about my love of winter and my kind of affection for the cold and even the dark, that wintering is a metaphor for those phases in our life when we feel frozen out or unable to make the next step and that that can come at any time, in any season, in any weather, that it has nothing to do with the physical cold. So it was very useful from a narrative point of view to be able to start with what indeed happened, which was on an unseasonably sunny day in September, just before my 40th birthday, when my husband fell very suddenly ill. Yeah. And then, and and you, and you kind of traversed then your own illness and, mm. and, and worries as a parent, struggles as a parent that are so familiar yeah. to anybody who's been a parent. I mean, here's, yeah. here's one way. I thought this was such a beautiful way of, you talked about, this is, you know, one, one, one of the many places where you kind of describe what, what, what you're talking about. You said with wintering, there are gaps in the mesh of the everyday world, and sometimes they open you and you fall through them into somewhere else. And somewhere else, which is now capitalized, somewhere else runs at a different <laughs> pace to the here and now where everyone else carries on. Mm. Yeah, that's a, that's a key feature of enduring a wintering, I think, in that it feels like everybody else is carrying on as normal and you're the only one with this storm cloud over your head. Yeah. And that's a very particular feeling because it brings up loads of emotions, I think, not just sadness, but also a sense of paranoia, a sense of humiliation, a sense that we've uniquely failed. And actually, whenever you start talking to people about your own winterings, they start telling you about theirs and you realise what huge community there could be if we talked about this in a different way. But I think from you know all of my life that experience has been feeling of falling through the cracks being there on your own and looking up through those cracks at the the world carrying on around you yeah and <clears throat> also what occurred to me as a sorry as i read that description is um there's, there's been something about this this pandemic and this pandemic year there's certainly there have still been gaps between us of all kinds but on some level, we all fell into somewhere else with capital letters all at yes. the same time. <laughs> all at yeah, the same time. Yeah, it's been a complicated one. Mm-hmm. I mean, I, you know, I've heard the phrase now, mass wintering. We're, we're enduring a mass wintering at the mm-hmm. moment. Mm-hmm. And I'm not sure that actually quite captures it, for me anyway. Because although nearly every single person in the world has been thrown into a winter this year... 
it's been an individual one. We've been very forcibly separated. Yes. And also we're all suffering in very different ways, I think. Yeah. And even what you just described uh, before before I mentioned the pandemic about just the ordinary experience of this in the course of a life, mm. even though in, in some ways we're all experiencing the same thing, as you say, we're all also alone with it. And I think also mm. those feelings of being of knowing that you're failing worse than anybody else, right? right? Or, <laughs> knowing right? it in your heart. Or knowing it in your heart. That, that, that's, also yeah. been, that's also been true at the very same time, that there was a, mm. that in some ways, and of course this didn't apply to everybody, we were all going through some of the same restrictions um, and mm. losses and just kind of seismic changes um, yeah. together. And that's, I think that's the moment when we all start falling out with each other as well. Like I've I've seen lots of people snapping at each other and mm. saying, well, you know, like you haven't got a right to be upset about this. It's fine for you. I've been doing X, Y and Z, you know, and everyone starts competing really <laughs> with yeah. their particular suffering. You know, like, well, I've been at home looking after a child while I'm supposed to be working full time. Well, I've been lonely, you know, right. <laughs> well, well, I lost someone and I... I think that gives it that very particular quality of all actually still wintering alone because mm -hmm. our winterings become almost in conflict with each other. Mm -hmm. And that, I mean, I don't think the conflict is real, but I think almost we're trained to try and work out this hierarchy of suffering. And yeah. actually suffering is suffering. You know, it's it's not comparable really. Right. Um, but because wintering is this kind of secret that we all keep, we're not used to seeing it so externalised as it has been this year. Yeah. I think that's only for the good, but we're, we're just not there yet with it. Yeah. I kept thinking of, <clears throat> um, you know, Rilke. Rilke, mm. the poet Rilke has been somebody who's been kind of a friend of mine across time and space for a long time. And, and Rilke spoke so poetically about, you know, what he would say, the dark hours of my being. Um, mm. And um, y you know that that feels that feels like other language um, that I think um, is also very familiar to those of us who have struggled with depression. Um, yeah. And and you also, I mean, that's also you know you you also write about your really devastating depression that you had when you were seventeen, but which mm. in hindsight you understand had at least probably a lot to do with your undiagnosed autism mm. and the kind of but but coming out as you I wouldn't I don't want to say emerge from that as you learn to live with that as a as those dark hours in your being <laughs> yeah. um how how you kind of learn to make it a rhythm of life I mean you said I began mm. to get a feel for my winterings their length and breadth their heft I knew that they didn't last forever yeah, that was that was a real insight that I got from that very first bout of very serious depression. I'd definitely been depressed before and I knew it, but this one really took me out. And I still remember the space that that made in my in my mind. I can still almost visit that place. It was a real dark, ringing space. It was incredibly empty. It was like a howling waste. I hmm. felt often like I was sitting at the bottom of a pit, yeah. a concrete lined pit. It was echoey. And yeah. actually, I, I often um, 
uh, Marikami often describes that space in his books. And I read them and I think, you know that place too. You sat in that place as well. But there was almost a, a kind of clarity that came with that eventually, with really hitting that rock bottom and being able to take stock and to start thinking about changes that I wanted to make, like how I wanted to be when I me- remade myself because I was I was like a pile of rubble at the time. Mm. I didn't have yeah. any self to go back into. And I there was a very distinct moment when I kind of thought, this doesn't get any worse. There's a there's only upwards from here. And I get to make a load of choices. And I did. Mm. And I I took that forward, I think, and knew that I wasn't solved. Whatever it was wasn't solved. I didn't have the the privilege of being able to say, oh, this is why this happened and this is never going to happen again. I knew that it was going to come back, but I also knew that it couldn't come back in the same way again, that there were some Mm. parts of it that I'd figured out. Mm. And so when it repeated itself, it was never as bad again. And I kind of knew that it was going to end, that it it wasn't going to be worse. And I think that that helped, definitely. I think that's also where the the framing of wintering, of the understanding um, of the seasonal, cycl- cyclical, like of the rhythmic nature of these things, um, mm. helps. Yeah. It gives you a frame, actually, to live with it. Um, there's mm. somewhere you said our winterings, and not only to, right, as you said, not only to live with it, but to to rest from it what the, i mean with w r e s t from it <laughs> what it what it can teach you not that you would wish for it or wish mm. this thing for anything else but you said they are asking something us our winterings we must learn to invite them in and to stop wishing mm. it were summer but i i think what you discovered that that is really the hardest thing to believe when you're in the midst of that dark place is that a summer that there is a summer on the other side of this right yeah, and I think I think almost like looking for summer is part of the problem that summer is too much of a high for us to be seeking. Not that summer doesn't come. Right. But actually when we're in a winter, we almost need to look for spring or autumn, you know, those kind of <laughs> right. intermediate stages that are manageable for our dark imaginations at the time. Yeah. And I I don't know if we if we ever really figure out how to think about how we want to be you know I don't think we want summer that often I think summer can be a bit too much in the way that winter can be a bit too much you know those extreme highs yeah you can't abide (laughs) abide with them for too long but what we can abide with is a sense of kind of balance and self-regulation I suppose I'd say and I think that's often what we're seeking on our way out of a winter you know how can I how can I come back into an equilibrium rather than keep bouncing between extremes yeah you know I'd I'd love to hear you read a bit of your book it it really does read um in places like like a meditation it's a very it's a very Mm. lovely um Restful retreating experience. There's, let me see, the passage I marked. What is the passage? Um, it's, um, let's see. This is long, but I'd love, I'd love to, I'd love to have you reading it. It's, it starts on page thirteen, the the paragraph that at the bottom of that page, and then going through to the end of 
that chapter? No problem. Oops, I'll just get through rustling my pages. Yeah. A surprising cluster of novels and fairy tales are set in the snow. Our knowledge of winter is a fragment of childhood, almost innate. All the careful preparations that animals make to endure the cold, foodless months, hibernation and migration, deciduous trees dropping leaves. This is no accident. The changes that take place in winter are a kind of alchemy, an enchantment performed by ordinary creatures to survive. Dormice laying on fat to hibernate, swallows navigating to South Africa, trees blazing out the final weeks of autumn. It is all very well to survive the abundant months of spring and summer, but in winter we witness the full glory of nature's flourishing in lean times. Plants and animals don't fight the winter. They don't pretend it's not happening and attempt to carry on living the same lives they lived in the summer. They prepare, they adapt, they perform extraordinary acts of metamorphosis to get them through. Wintering is a time of withdrawing from the world, maximising scant resources, carrying out acts of brutal efficiency and vanishing from sight. But that's where the transformation occurs. Winter is not the death of the life cycle, but it's crucible. Once we stop wishing it were summer, winter can be a glorious season in which the world takes on a sparse beauty and even the pavements sparkle. It's a time for reflection and recuperation, for slow replenishment, for putting your house in order. Doing these deeply unfashionable things, slowing down, letting your spare time expand, getting enough sleep, resting, is a radical act now, but it's essential. This is a crossroads we all know, a moment when you need to shed a skin. If you do, you'll expose all those painful nerve endings and feel so raw that you'll need to take care of yourself for a while. If you don't, then that skin will harden around you. It's one of the most important choices you'll ever make. Oh, thank you. <laughs> there were some really difficult words in there. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> well, you did you did an excellent job. It was beautiful. Yeah, wonderful. I mean, you you say you know, you call these the unfashionable things. It's just like even when you look at these individual words, some of those difficult words like recuperation, <laughs> slow replenishment, even reflection. Uh, there's a sense in which um, everything in our culture and our cultures, both the culture that you live in and the one I live in, mm. the, the culture of the West, I think, inclines us to resist this, to resist these things. Mm. And to see rest and the need for rest as shameful. Yeah. Like rest is something that you only ever get forced into or yeah. that it has to be commodified somehow too. You know, that rest can only be something that you've paid to do, you know, a fancy retreat or a day at a spa or you know whatever whatever it is that you fancy doing um and i i think we've just got that all wrong like rest should be part of the simple rhythm of our day mm -hmm. and of our week and of our year you know in different ways i don't think we know what rest even is anymore to be honest i i, I think we've lost track of that yeah i i really i really recognized myself in some of the ways you described um, 
the self that you were reflecting on as you were forced, right? You were forced mm. to stop. You were mm. forced to go inwards. You were forced to slow down and, and seek, repl- seek replenishment as, a, as really as m- much survival as, as anything that would feel luxurious, as you say. Um, yeah. um, I re- you know, and, and I have to say, what's, you know, I recognize in what you describe also reflection I've been doing in this hard year of 2020 on the way I'd been living Mm. And 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 would not have been forced. Would not have for, made forced myself to this kind of stop. Yes, but that I think the that's pandemic so forced. But I don't want to. You know, I'm thinking. I'm, I'm I'm trying to take this this wintering moment, um, both the season and in our culture to to try to get really clear in myself. Kind of who who mm. I do want to be on the other side. How I want to live on the other side. I mean, you. Again, you, I, I recognize myself so much, you say. People <laughs> admired me for how much I got done. I lapped it up, but felt secretly that I was only trying to keep pace with everyone else, and they seem to be coping better. I felt like that all the time <laughs> for so many years of my life. I mean, are we just a big mesh of people that feel that way? I, I sometimes think yeah. that's probably the case, yeah. that we all suspect everyone else is doing it. And we're hiding we it. Are. We're hiding it and we're all hiding it from each other and so feeling yeah. more alone with it than we are. I mean, Yeah, it's like our dirty secret. It's it? our dirty secret. <laughs> and you also, you also describe how, you know, you were actually officially declared ill and you had to take a break from your doctor. Yes, and you I was said, stamped, yeah. Right? And you said, "I am, I'm." You're pleased, slyly and secretly, that you have <laughs> you have actual pain to contend with, rather than a more nebulous sense of my overwhelm. See, mm. I am not unable to manage my workload. I am legitimately ill. Um, yeah. Again, that's so familiar. It's it's a way we've not only lived but actually respected mm. and honored right we have rewarded that way of living we have and also we've set up a, a whole governmental system that honors that too you know like i needed a doctor to approve my illness in order mm. to believe it myself i you know mm. and that's economic obviously i needed to know that i had state guarantees behind my illness should it carry on for too long but it's also the way that we've bought into what health and illness actually are. And we've come to see that as something that's externally approved from our own knowledge and knowing. Right. We've divorced ourselves from our, our gut instinct, actually, I think. Yeah. I would have, if I, had, if, if I felt I had the right to judge my own wellness, I'd have declared myself ill a year before that, you know, Mm -hmm. and I would have taken a rest much earlier, but I didn't feel like I had the right to decide it for myself ultimately. Yes. And if you had it, you would have felt like you were making a, A it was a show of weakness, right? It was a show of failure. I'd have felt ashamed. Right. I'd have felt huge shame. And I still felt shame, you know, even when I was doubled over in pain at my desk. Mm-hmm. I was ringing my um, mm-hmm. my colleague and saying, I think I'm going to have to go home, you know. I really I really think I'm going to have to go home. And she was saying, go home. And I was saying, but I can't. And, she, <laughs> you know, and, then, and yeah. then the doctor would call back and say, I've sent a prescription to the pharmacy, you know. <laughs> yeah. And it, even in that moment of crisis, I was apologetic about it. Yeah. 
I was bargaining with it. Yeah. I was bargaining yeah. with myself. And I also felt like I had to prove it to that mm -hmm. colleague. I almost felt like I had to pick up the phone while I was in absolute agony for her to hear it in my voice. I wanted her to know that I was right. sick. Right. Mm. What does that say about us? It's terrible, isn't it? It is. It's a terrible that we put ourselves and and each other in in that situation, and you know, mm. and then and then the other hard thing, one other many hard things in this, um, <laughs> as much as there are life giving things too, um, is you know that that beautiful passage you just read that you know. Um, this is a crossroads when you need to shed a skin, you expose painful nerve endings, and that's raw, and so you need to take care of yourself for a while. Mm. And then there's the reality that um, the circumstances of life do, uh, do again and again, um, make make it impossible. That's too much to ask. Like, there, it literally, mm. um, there's, there's the... There's that divorce you said of 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 what we really need and 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 what we think we can ask for or give ourselves um, that is culturally mm. imposed, and then there are true circumstances of life um, that make it impossible to rest. And I parenting at yeah. so many stages does does that. Oh, um, and 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 right and and this year, um, you know, being a parent during the pandemic, or um, which which was and or you know people who are also actually not getting a rest. And there are so mm. many of them um, who are working harder than ever before um, because yeah. we've called them essential workers. And so we, right, which there's some irony and they in that. Are, they're so essential that we, we don't let them have a We're wearing them down, yeah. yeah. And, and but, but, but even, and so that's the, I mean, that's the, that's happening at a, at a, at a, at a larger societal level. But even, mm. yeah, even, you know, you, um, being a mother and and being sick yourself and 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 being present to your child um and mm. and also yeah the situation so many people are in of being stretched in literally too many different directions yeah this, especially I, it's parents. hard not to conclude that that's a problem that comes from the privatized nuclear family you know the way that we are yeah. all stuck yeah. in our small separate family units and the issue that comes from that is, A, that that little unit requires a lot of money to fuel it. And that means that oh, two yeah. people are responsible for all of that money coming into the house. But also it means that we lack basic support so often. I mean, I don't live near either of my parents. One of them's moved to another country. One of them's the other side of the county. I don't have any, and this is like so many people, I think, any kind of convenient family that I can call on and more than that I mean incredibly recently we'd have lived in bigger family groups yeah. we'd have lived in units where our lives were intermeshed and we think it's a virtue to all be so separate we think that this privacy we have mm -hmm. is worth it but I actually don't think it is I think it's part of our profound sense of exhaustion actually right right mm. I remember feeling that um, you know, in the years since I've researched this, and I and I and I and I and I know how unnatural the nuclear family is mm. in the sweep of of, so of our of our yeah. species. But I remember yeah. when when my daughter was young, and I was living in a place I just moved to, didn't know a soul. You know, all family, very very far away, and, mm. and just thinking like this is not 
It's yeah. not a natural thing for an adult and a small child to be alone in yeah. a house all day to, just by themselves. <laughs> like It has some beautiful moments, but it's not... Mm. It, this can't be the way it's supposed to be. I think that felt really abundantly clear to me in those early days of motherhood. Yeah. When you'd get those moments where you'd been trying to occupy your child and occupy your child... And I mean, I don't know if this is universal, but for me, there'll be these moments when this silence would fall between the two of us and we'd look at each other (laughs) like, I've got nothing, you know, (laughs) I've got nothing for you right now. Can you watch TV for a while? (laughs) Right. And and I, there were that, those were the moments when I thought this is so unnatural. Yeah. Like this is not how we're supposed to do it. And I, I remember at the time asking around and saying to people like, can we find a way to be in each other's business more in in a Mm. more natural way because actually I don't want to go to coffee mornings arranged yeah it needs to not be a play date right it yeah Yeah. natural is I don't want to do any of that I want yeah yeah, Mm -hmm. like I I just want someone else in the house while Mm -hmm. I'm doing this and Mm -hmm. I want our children to play with each other without us doing their play for them all the time because I don't think that's how children were ever meant to play actually yeah and I I need to be able to stop managing all of this because it's it, it felt genuinely unnatural to me yeah yeah mm. I, I i'd like to talk a little bit also about you know you you grew up with um with undiagnosed autism and mm. it feels like um in fact you lived until you were 38 without that diagnosis yeah. Yeah. um and that's certainly been part of um that's that's informed so much of of your um, adventure and struggle of kind of you know <laughs> yeah. just everything that wintering represents, but just kind of making a life. Um, mm. And and I and I and I also you know want to talk about it because it's it's a you know the the autism spectrum as we say now it, we're we're becoming more fluent culturally in that language and realizing how how much that is kind of defines so many people in our midst right it's yeah, this is not yeah. this is not some very rare condition mm. it, it is a way of being human and i mean it was so interesting to me um for you to describe how you you were 38 years old like you you had you had never recognized yourself in all the descriptions you'd seen mm. a movie with a person with autism generalizations about this the the official medical definitions um you never yeah. that never described you yeah and i and in fact i'd have considered myself quite well versed in autism as well in terms of the fact that i'd always worked in education my degree was partly in psychology. I'd come across descriptions of autism over and over again and never once recognised myself. And it was only once I heard another autistic woman speaking about her experiences on a radio show that I got this immediate sense of recognition and, and profound. I mean, not there was no doubt in my mind all of a sudden that this was me. This was absolutely me. And I... I now know that actually a lot of the research that I knew was incredibly outdated. But the problem with that is that a lot of the research that other professionals know is the same research and it remains outdated. And we're carrying on reproducing this meme of what autism 
is, which is just not true. Mm-hmm. And over and over again, we show each other the the vision of the kind of, of the young boy, the young white boy in particular. Right. And you think um, that was one reason nobody ever thought of, one simple reason nobody ever thought mm. of you in the connection is because you weren't a boy. wasn't a boy and I wasn't yeah. middle class as well. I mean, we often... Um, like the the autistic kids we show are often kind of middle class kids as well mm-hmm. and there's there are so many people that are excluded from our very narrow understanding if you're poor you're more likely to get a diagnosis of being naughty mm-hmm. or you might get ADHD if you're lucky mm-hmm. um if you're black pff, you have very little chance of getting an autism diagnosis at all mm-hmm. and if you're a girl then that's I mean, honestly, there's actually, you know, quite a lot of active prejudice against the idea that girls can be autistic at all. We're now beginning to diagnose about uh, a quarter as many girls as boys. But my personal belief is that probably there's just as many autistic girls as there are as autistic boys. But we often exhibit it very differently. We are very, very invested in masking it. And we can, so we do. Mm. But that leads to incredible damage over the course of our lives and to the kind of breakdowns that I describe in my book, actually. Right. Because it's exhausting pretending to be something you're not and constantly putting yourself into situations that are actually really harmful. Um, And that's, yeah, and that leads to my kind of expertise in wintering in a way. To to, to your what? To my expertise in wintering. Your expertise, yeah. Yeah, (laughs) right. When I sat down to write it, I mm-hmm. I started to plan the book out and thought, am I allowed to write this? And then I thought, actually, I know this better than anyone. Like, I've been cast out in so many different ways. I know what it is to feel like an outsider. Mm. And I know what it is to crash. Um, and, yeah, it, it began to feel like a like finally I'd, I'd learned something, maybe, <laughs> well, yeah, all of this. You've said... Um... Well, let me just ask you before we move on from this. Um, I mean, you know, you not you write about this t- somewhat in your wintering book, and I've also read mm. um, a couple of other pieces or interviews with you about this subject. I mean, you point out uh, there's so much you point out that, and I also feel like I'm somebody who's read a lot about this, and I've done some interviews mm. about it. But mm. some of the things that you pointed out that just um, were still really a little bit shocking is, you know, how Mm. on the one hand, um, you know, here's something you said that, you know, there's these, there are these ideas about, um, I think this is an official literature too, um, of of the autistic Mm. personality being highly restricted, fixated and accessibly circumscribed. Um, Mm. And then you say, here we are discussing a source of pleasure and joy for artistic people, invariably linked to identity in a profound way. You know, another mm. example is you say that it will often be, disc- uh, the D- DSM will say that there's this, Im- you say that, that that there's this failure to grasp the challenging, the challenging aspects of autistic experience and pathologize the positive ones. Um, mm. And for example, there will be this idea that there's this apparent indifference to pain and yet at the same time describe um, autistic people as often in extreme distress. Just right, yeah. just the the huge contradiction in that in those statements together. So I guess just uh, before we move on, I wonder what would you want I mean, I wonder if you would say a little bit more about what you learned about yourself, which is what you wish more people would know 
just kind of filling out mm. our imaginations. Oh, such a lot. I think we could fill about five hours. Mm -hmm. um, <laughs> mm -hmm. There's an incredible researcher who I'm lucky enough to know called Damien Milton. And his research into autism shows that there's actually a, a kind of a double blindness between autistic and neurotypical people, which means we fail to understand each other very well. Mm -hmm. So most of the research that's ever been done into us has been by neurotypical people. Right. And so you get these incredibly externalised accounts of autistic people which say things like, uh, we lack affect, you know, and therefore we're not feeling emotions. Um, that we are not empathetic enough, that we are, yes, obsessive or fixated. And when you actually talk to autistic people, and so much more research is now being done by autistic people themselves, and that's transforming the field mm -hmm. and, and flipping so much of what we think we know on, it, on its head. But actually, the opposite is true as so many of these things. So, yeah, I've been mistaken loads of time in my life for not being in enough pain, stress, when I'm actually extremely distressed. I've been, um, you know, told that I, I sort of lack empathy when actually I'm often fl so flooded with empathy that I can't act in that moment. Mm. Uh, we need to, with, oh gosh, I mean, isn't this the theme of 2020 as well? We need to learn to listen better. Mm. But we also need to learn that autistic people find neurotypical people just as baffling as they find us. <laughs> right. This, like, this double mind blindness. Um, and I, you know, like I, I think I describe in the Eon article that you're quoting from there, um, that when I enter a room full of neurotypical people, I'm baffled by their lack of affect in the same way that they describe <laughs> right. an autistic lack of affect. You know, like I can't understand how people can be near loud noises without flinching right. or how they can, uh, you know, be in a noisy party and enjoy themselves without having to completely shut down. Like right. we need to we need to be able to understand that that being autistic is a valid human experience. And actually, a very ordinary human experience. Yes. The more research yes. we do, we realise how common it is. Right, and that's. And you, I think that's what. That's just this huge revelation that, that is, yes. is unfolding. Yeah. Yeah, mm -hmm. and I mean, if you start to expand that into neurodiversity in general, and you start to include people who are dyspraxic, dyslexic, who have ADHD, like all of these different mm -hmm. experiences of the world that are actually very allied, mm -hmm. you realise that we are everywhere, and yet we are not acknowledged or spoken about, and that our our way of living and our needs for life are not you know supported mm -hmm. and that actually what we need is often incredibly basic accommodation rather than any kind of a cure and right. if you know like we don't get the medical inter interventions that we need because we're not looking for stuff that stops us from being autistic like if like the surveys right, pretty right. much steadily show that about 70% of autistic people say that they would never want a cure and only about 5 to 10% are really clear that they would be cured of it. Like most of us want to be autistic. We like being autistic. We love that quality of attention that autism brings. Right. And what we want is help with coping with a world that's made for neurotypical people. 
Right. It's, it's, it's amazing that this is surprising, but it is, and I know it is, and it was surprising to even me because my autism was invisible to me and yeah. I didn't know how to make accommodations for myself until I was nearly 40. Although, you know, and thank you for all of that. Um, <laughs> and I, it is so interesting how you... Um, you, you, as you say, you never. You're a swimmer, right? You said you, but you said you. You said I don't. Wouldn't really count myself as a swimmer, as more a seeker of watery sanctuary. But it was never for you indoor swimming pools. No, um, it was noisy, the sea. echoey things. Yeah. Uh huh. Yeah, yeah. I mean, indoor swimming pools are actually very unpleasant place, places for me because the noise is really intense. Um, there's that kind of intense chlorine smell. Like one of the things yeah. that doesn't get talked about as. A, a, you know, a, a key part of the autistic experience is sensory overload. Like everything yeah. is turned up to a hundred, um, and so I can't stick around in a swimming pool. I get incredibly uncomfortable there. But the sea, that natural soundscape, that mm. kind of uh, much more expansive place outside, mm -hmm. is the most calming, calming place I can think of to be. Mm. And how you. You know, and even in the course of this writing this book, I think you kept investigating um, because the sea, the sea around the UK is cold, <laughs> right? This is this is not a warm <laughs> ocean. Um, um, and I live in Minnesota, and I swim in Lake Superior, which is the same thing. Um, oh, wonderful! Yeah, but um, what you. We are learning, actually, scientifically about mm. what cold water immersion and and um, increasing dopamine and 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 actually being he healing in ways. And so, the, so yeah. at some point, you started to realize that you had, even though you didn't have that diagnosis, as you say, this there was a lot uh, that was invisible even to you. You found comfort for your nervous system. You mm, definitely. you found that thing, yeah. that water that could reset you. Yeah, and I mean, I there were a lot of things that I was doing before my diagnosis that went against my instinct, without a doubt. But actually, there, I, what I understood after was that I did have an instinct towards my own survival. Like when I got to choose, I would be near the sea always, mm. um, and that actually I think shows that every, everybody's got something I mean I want I, I should say really clearly that loads of autistic people hate water and hate the feeling of water yeah so we're not like we're not a straightforward community to serve like you know mm -hmm. you know it's all it's all very individual but for me like if I begin to feel like I am really overloaded and you know my brain is beginning to feel like it's it's melting um, I run myself a bath now and sit in it. And, mm. you know, this all feeds into the knowledge that I brought into wintering, actually, because that simple act, that allowing myself to to do something active in order to reset mm. is such a useful tool to have in your toolkit because it's mm -hmm. often not very much that you need in the moment to re restore yourself, you know, restore your, your peace of mind. Um yeah. But you must allow yourself to actually do that. And and I think we very rarely do. And I very rarely did until I had a name for what I am that let me say, oh, I need to take action now because otherwise this is going to get an awful lot worse. Yeah. I think that's so helpful. Um, 
and you know, as much as we're um, we're and you are writing and we're speaking about wintering both as a season of as, as, as an aspect of of being alive and and also mm. I mean you also do move towards actual winter right all right yes, and I so I, yeah. and I'm aware like even as I'm preparing to speak to you today I'm 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 thinking of my friends in LA who just really don't have this experience and even when they think they're having it when it gets to be 50 they're they're not um or you know my friends in Australia where it's the height of summer um I have to say, like I like you, I love the cold. I'm, I'm, mm. I'm convinced that it's in my genetic makeup. And, um, but I mean, yeah. you, you go to Iceland, right, for, as part of yes. the research for this book. Um, you, you, you talk about snow um, mm. as a, as such a unique and complex um, experience, and loving snow even as a complex experience. <laughs> Yeah. And I, I mean, I think snow, I like I get to love snow, I guess, because actually I see it very rarely in yeah. the south of England. We don't get much snow. And in, in Whitstable in particular, we're one of the places in the country that it's least likely to snow because we have a very special microclimate. So often five miles down the road, there'll be snow and Whitstable will just be, you know, warm and sunny. Right. And I'm devastated on those days. I'm like asking all my friends to text me pictures of the snow <laughs> right. because because <laughs> it's not terribly safe to drive to go and see other people's snow apparently. Um, but I, what I love about snow is the way that it makes a clean break. It transforms the landscape. Everything's different. Everything sounds different. The quality of life yeah. is different. Yeah. The light kind of sparkles off it. You know before you open your curtains that snow has landed. And for me, I just think that's such a gift. I know it's less of a gift if it's there for five or six months. Yeah. But that is like a, it's a break in the, in the routine. It's a, it's a little bit like a, a kind of pause that, you know, you can't go about your normal business. Right. School chucks out, you know. Right. But you get to, you get to see your world in a different way. And it's beautiful, I grew up in quite an unbeautiful place and snow used to make it beautiful. Mm. And I used to absolutely love that. And I now live in a very beautiful place and snow makes it magical instead <laughs> when it comes. <laughs> yeah, so where you say that snow is, creates a liminal space, a crossing point between the mundane and the magical. Mm. And actually, I mean, the, the quote that I read earlier was about the kind of the presence of winter in children's books. And yeah. so often yes. snow is used as this trigger for change. You know, the yeah. snow falls and everything is different. And we see that when the kids cross into Narnia. We see that in The Dark is Rising when Will comes of age just as the snow falls and suddenly magic is possible. We see it repeated over and over again. And I don't think that's a coincidence. I think we know that snow is a world in between the the real world and the fantasy world and there's something there's something about kind of actively wintering or kind of acknowledging this as a part of life um yeah that is also about how we think about time mm. right? and the and 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 passages and um and seasons yeah. even if they're not so dramatic as they are in in storybooks I mean, it feels like that. That it's like that. This you also investigate have investigated, not just in 
the seasons and cycles of the natural world, but in rituals and ideas and celebrations in folklore and ancient cultures that somehow haven't, that we sometimes have just retained a kind of ghost of, kind of yeah. a fragment of. Yeah. I felt like actually in the process of researching wintering, I externalized a lot of the the rituals that existed in my, you know, in my native land that I had been vaguely aware of almost at the edges of my consciousness or that maybe I'd taken part in things that referred to them but hadn't really understood what they were. And so, yeah, I've started to celebrate midwinter, for example, which is coming up very soon as we speak, um, and to really begin to notice what that says about the progress of light across the year about the way the sun moves across the sky, about how long we're spending in darkness and in cold and about how we find hope at the, the sort of deepest part of the cold season. Hmm. And I, I had the privilege of talking to Philip Cargom, who is our treat, chief druid in the UK. Yes, that was so interesting. Yeah. Can I just say, midwinter is also the winter solstice, correct? Like That's, a, that's right, yes. yes so it's yes. the... It's the it's the end of I mean, some people think midwinter is the end of the shortest day and some people think it's the beginning of the day after. Like uh-huh. that's when you say All it. right. I think I, I like to do both. I like to kind of top and tail it really. Mm-hmm. Okay. <laughs> Watch the sun go down and, yeah. and see it come up again. Um, yeah. and see that movement into the, the next part of the year. Um but yeah, what, what Philip Cobb Gom told me was that um the in the pagan year there is a a ceremony or a ritual or something being marked every six weeks across the year. And that that gives hope for anybody who is currently suffering because you are never far away from the next moment when you can get together and Mm. when you can celebrate. But also it gives you a sense of time passing, which is really helpful when you're struggling because time can begin to drag and you can get mired in hopelessness but actually you get a kind of marker of your progress so the next time that something comes up in the calendar you can feel how far away you actually are from the last time you celebrated and that that helps you to move through and you can start to look towards the next one and a pleasure in the next one perhaps as a way of of kind of dividing up those those long months, and I thought that was very very beautiful and very wise and very insightful. It it is, and it also makes you realize how kind of how ritual poor we are um, yes. in our yeah. societies, yeah. right? Just for marking uh, just passages, passages, mm. and yeah, rites of passage as well. Mm-hmm. Actually, I think, mm-hmm. and I I began to notice that most of our rituals are clustered in the winter and that we've kind of dropped the summer ones, which I think yeah. is interesting too. We've clung to the ones we really need. And maybe like in the UK, Easter is is still really commonly celebrated. And that's like the very end of the winter when you think about it. It's the beginning of the, the warm coming back. But then there's nothing. There's yeah. nothing through the whole summer. And I wonder if that's because we're not trying to survive the darkness anymore. Mm-hmm. But we've kind of forgotten within that the people that are surviving other darknesses. Yes, I, yes. Yeah. Yes. Um, I, 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 uh, I did love the passage where you write about um, Philip Carr uh, 
Gom. Kargom, yeah, that's um, right, yeah. Um, who is the who is the head, the chief druid in the UK? Mm. And you know, I have to say, I'm really leaning into midwinter this in 2020 as well in a way I never have before, yeah. and feeling that that winter solstice has something to mark, and that and that as you know, and you nod to it in in the book, it's there's also a bit of a there's kind of a new agey feel sometimes to the way mm. that, you know, it's like where the solstice has been appropriated, yeah, which yeah. is actually, or it almost, you know, it can be, it can even be, um, I think, it, I think felt as pagan and pagan as being something that is, uh, that is antithetical to the religious traditions, which of yeah, course is just yeah. out of touch with the reality that all of these things arose together. Right? They together. they go yeah. hand in hand. Um, but you you had this one. There's this wonderful moment where you you describe contacting him, um, and you were you were reading an interview in the Times in which he acknowledged. <laughs> The discomfort he has with some of these caricatures yes. and and even yes. some of these illusions, right? And he said, he said to you, I think he's the chief druid again. I think druidry <laughs> is a bit wacky myself, and then a lot of what's going on in the world is wacky. Trump is a bit weird. I look at Anglican bishops in their robes and think they are a bit weird. As John Cleese once said, the greatest fear of the English is embarrassment. So I am saddled with that. <laughs> I do you know what I, I I it's one of the reasons I absolutely adore him because he's got an immense sense of humor but I think I mean I think that speaks deep truth about the British as as much as, as much as how weird some of our beliefs can be like we are awkward about all of this stuff we are deeply uncomfortable with ritual as a society we have we have deliberately rejected it and we also in so doing have diminished our ability to talk about spiritual matters in our country yeah. and actually I think behind the humor there is there is a loss that I think some of us are realizing yeah that we need to begin to recover and that isn't necessarily about big religion I mean as you know we have an established church you know like religion is knitted into our society but in a funny sort of a way that's made our church more apologetic about what it does because it's had to try and and, and suit everybody and not it's, to be intrusive. It's there by right, yeah. Yeah, and and yeah. I think, you know, the, the people, the good people who run it do not want to impose themselves on people. So actually they've tended to, to draw back in a way that, uh, you know, less established religions in other countries don't. But we, I think we are a society that is in desperate need of finding a way to reach for those bigger spiritual questions and yeah. and that, and that's in fact that takes us back to what we spoke about with me right at the beginning like I'm a really good example of someone who grew up with that being almost forbidden like not in an aggressive way but just mm -hmm. it would have been seen as a very embarrassing thing for me to do right. to find a spiritual life and as I've gone through my life I've just felt a pull in that direction and there's not very much for me in my country that allows me to do that 
But when Philip Carl Gomm talks about feeling a little bit embarrassed by it all, (laughs) I just feel so grateful, (laughs) you know. There's there's permission right there to to do it anyway, even though it's a bit weird. (laughs) I love that. (laughs) Yeah. (laughs) Yeah, it's yeah, it's wonderful. Um you you also um it started to just pay a little more attention to, you know, the way the way animals do this, right? Different mm. animals that, and I, I have to say again, in twenty twenty, there was actually a moment this fall, and so I was really so drawn to you writing about this, where I, I just, well, first of all, I felt myself slowing down. I live in a place that gets very cold in the winter. And of course, the, meanwhile, the news in the world is worse than ever before. And I, I literally mm. wish that I could be a bear. And I was like, what would it be like <laughs> if I could now just go to sleep <laughs> down, and yeah. wake up in a few months and just miss yeah. this period because I can see that, <laughs> that nothing good is coming of it. It's but I mean, you, you really did. Um, I, I don't. I, it made me think about it, it. You know, it was it was interesting to read you, um, just taking note of how different different creatures in the natural world take this on, mm. this wintering thing. Yeah, and actually, it's it's incredibly variable. But what animals tend to do for winter is slow down because they have to because food tends to be scarcer depending on what kind of an animal you are. But they they also prepare. And I think the biggest insight that I got from the process of of learning about animals wintering is that actually we need to flip on its head the idea that life happens in the summer because animal life is pointed towards winter. Everything they do is pointed towards surviving that much more scarce time. And in that kind of abundant season, they're just getting ready for winter. They've always got their eye on that moment of survival. And that's particularly true of bees, uh, who I, you know, I interviewed a fascinating beekeeper who told me about how bees, he he described bees as wintering machines. And, Mm. you know, like we, all of the stuff we know about bees, they make honey, they live together. (laughs) That's because of winter. That's not because of summer. They wouldn't need to make honey if winter didn't exist. They make honey to survive the winter. And they are physically adapted to it in the most fascinating way. So they, uh, in the midwinter, to keep the hive warm, they're able to kind of dislocate their wings so that they can drive the motor. I'm sorry, I am aware that bees don't have a motor, but let, let's call it a motor for one <laughs> okay, of a better word. Right. Uh, that's, that's the best I can do, not being a, a, a biologist. Um, but they drive the little motor that runs their wings without it flapping their wings, and that heats the hive. Mm. You know, all of these fascinating things about these animals that we think of as thriving through the warm months and just about barely hanging on in the winter. That's just not the way that they perceive it. And I I also got to hold a hibernating dormouse, which um, was an immensely happy moment for me. Um, You guys don't have dormice, uh, which I didn't know. I I really pity you for not having dormice because they are... (laughs) possibly the cutest animal we do ever, have so. some bears though you don't have bears yeah you, you can't hold you can't hold a bear in you the can't hold a bear it's true it's true they right. don't like being cuddled they really yeah. don't. 
But, yeah. you know, this, this dormouse mouse that I was holding um, was had got so fat in the summer to survive that its little paws were almost absorbed into itself. Like it mm. was a, a tiny little golf ball and freezing cold, but squishy. And that mm. squishiness is its, its liquid brown fat that it can access really easily over the course of the winter. And I... Mm. You know, like we learn about animals hibernating, but actually encountering a hibernating creature was fascinating. My cat is meowing at me. Sorry, yeah. no, should I let her out? Hang on, hang on. Okay, all right. Sorry about that. I thought I'd shut her out. She must have snuck back in again. <laughs> no problem. <laughs> There you go, nature. Nature came and got us halfway through. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. So sorry. Would you like me to pick that sentence up again? Um, no, I th I think it's good. Was there anything else that you learned from the dormouse that you'd want to make note of? <sighs> no, only that I want to keep one as a pet. I think yeah. <laughs> I, just, I want to live among dormice. But they they weave this very beautiful little nest before they hibernate, mm. and although they hibernate alone they found that in places where that the dormice are more at risk, they tend to hibernate in groups together, which I think is a really interesting change that, it, that we're beginning to observe. Mm. And the last thing they do before they go into hibernation is they weave themselves a little door for their, um, for their nest. And so when the conservationists were showing me the dormouse, they had a clear little door to open to take out this hibernating dormouse. <laughs> it's really enchanting. Oh, oh. <laughs> Wow. They're very beautiful. <laughs> <laughs> I wonder I wonder how you how how you would start to talk about what you learned. Uh, how old is your son now? He's 8. He's 8 and he was kind of 6 and 7 when you were writing, yeah. right? And the, yeah. Um uh, which are which is such a which are such amazing ages. Um mm. How what have you learned from him like and through wa walking through life with him? Um Mm, um, about about what about what we you know about this that how how we do this these passages and um mm. and how we how we learn to winter or or our or learn to resist it um yeah how has he taught yeah. you so um a key part of the book is that i had to uh, take him out of school um because he was really struggling he was really suffering from anxiety and there was a clear choice for us, which was that the conventional thing to do was to find a way to force him to carry on. And I felt very, very strongly that although I'd never intended to be a homeschooler and that I really didn't want to, I wanted my time, yeah. that I knew that if I didn't take him out of school at that moment when he was in such extreme distress, that I would be teaching him a very, very bad lesson for his future, which is that, you know, your suffering is not relevant and that you must just put your head down and carry on and tamp down your feelings. Mm. And I couldn't do that to him. And so we had to, he's back in school now. Uh, he, he kind of recovered really well and went back to a new school where he's incredibly happy. Um, but while he was out of school, we had to spend some time together learning to winter, like teaching him mm. how to acknowledge this time and to see it as 
a narrative arc almost, to see it as something that wasn't permanent, but it was a process he was working through. And he was learning something about himself and what he needed. And I felt very strongly that he was learning to trust us, really, with with his darkest feelings, to, to know that if he shared with us his suffering, that we would act and that we would take him seriously. And that was a a really important process for me because I'd always, you know, like I'm not the most mumsy mum. I've never felt like I'm one of the kind of Instagram mothering clubs. I'm My parenting has always felt very kind of ad hoc and chaotic. And I've, you know, often written about my quite ambivalent feelings about being a parent as well, that, you know, you can love someone unbearably intensely, but also resent what they take from you at the same time. Mm-hmm. And I'd always wondered if I would step up if it was required of me. And I did. Mm. And I'm proud of myself for that, actually. Mm. Mm. It was a very important moment for the whole family where we had to make everything stop. And that was really hard. It was financially hard. It was emotionally hard. But that for me is like the core of what we are now. We do this, like we make everything stop when everything needs to stop. Mm. And that makes me hope that in the future, he'll make everything stop when it needs to stop again. When it's down to him, he will put the pause button on if it's required. And I feel like I've taught him a really important skill there. As you describe it, I, I also feel like you, you you made a move with him that is so counterintuitive as a parent, mm. but so essential if what you're raising is a human being in the world rather yeah. than somebody who's your child, right? Yeah. Um, which is you, you, you taught him not to resist his sadness. Mm. That, that sadness... Somewhere you say, if happiness is a skill, then sadness is too. Like unhappiness yeah. is too. But boy, yeah. that's a hard thing to carry with your child. Yeah, really hard. And I feel like we talk about raising our kids for resilience a lot. Mm-hmm. And I don't think we can raise them to be truly resilient unless we've let them be sad sometimes. And I think the reason we're so afraid of sadness is when we hear accounts of people talking about being sad in their childhood, they're often sad because they've been somehow abandoned emotionally or they've been treated badly or nobody's listening to them. But I think it's very different to allow your children to be sad and support them and Mm -hmm. to be there for them. Mm -hmm. Because actually that for me is gonna uh, hopefully you know this is my intention maybe come back to me in 20 years but I'm trying to raise an emotionally intelligent child who not only can meet their own needs and can do that without terror at at what sadness unlocks Mm -hmm. but who can also be compassionate to other people and since you know he's he had his crisis and he's come back from it We've been able to talk about that in terms of other kids when they're maybe struggling a little bit and mm. to 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 use it to help him to, you know, be part of a community and to find empathy and compassion for other children. 
And I, yeah, I mm. think he's doing all right. <laughs> mm. Mm. Would Would you read? Um, it's on page page two thirty six. Um, mm-hmm. uh, so this would be the the final um, paragraph there. I'm beginning to think, mm-hmm. and then to. Um, and then to the and then on to that second paragraph, which goes over into the next page that ends in our own time. Sure. I'm beginning to think that unhappiness is one of the simple things in life, a pure, basic emotion to be respected, if not savored. I'd never dream of suggesting that we should wallow in misery or shrink from doing everything we can to alleviate it, but I do think it's instructive. After all, unhappiness has a function. It tells us that something is going wrong. If we don't allow ourselves the fundamental honesty of our own sadness, then we miss an important cue to adapt. We seem to be living in an age when we're bombarded with entreaties to be happy, but we're suffering from an avalanche of depression. We're urged to stop sweating the small stuff, yet we're chronically anxious. I often wonder if these are just normal feelings that become monstrous when they're denied. A great deal of life will always suck. There will be moments when we're riding high and moments when we can't bear to get out of bed. Both are normal. Both, in fact, require a little perspective. Sometimes the best response to our howls of anguish is the honest one. We need friends who wince along with our pain, who tolerate our gloom and who allow us to be weak for a while while we're finding our feet again. We need people who acknowledge that we can't always hang on, that sometimes everything breaks. Short of that, we need to perform those functions for ourselves, to give ourselves a break when we need it and to be kind, to find our own grit in our own time. It seems that, um, um, that yeah, paragraph is my editor's yeah. favorite one as well. That's quite. Oh, funny. it is really. <laughs> yes, you're, she'll be really pleased you chose that. I think. Well, <laughs> well, well. I, yeah, I, it, it. You say, you say this, this thing that is, is this a, this is a, um, this, 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 this message has a, has an edge to it, right? You say that, mm. that we surround ourselves, and even you point out like how we say, "Hang in there." You're stronger yeah. than you know that 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 we're doing that in a spirit of care, but it can be the opposite of caring. Mm. I think this description that we need friends who wince along with our pain, who tolerate our gloom, and who allow yeah. us to be weak for a while when we're finding our feet again. Yeah, I think that's so true. I think we we're so uncomfortable with sadness, and our instinct when someone tells us they're sad is to solve it for them. Or to find like a message that's going to inspire them. Yeah. And I think that can feel a lot like being pushed away. It can feel a lot like being told that our feelings aren't acceptable and that our state of being isn't acceptable. I mean, I, you know, when we're in this position, it's more than a feeling, it's a whole state of being. Yeah. And it's a skill that we can all learn to say to people when they're suffering, oh God, that's awful. And make space for their sadness, like open up a space that their sadness is acknowledged and validated. Like when we do that, it doesn't cause harm. It doesn't Mm. encourage them somehow. It doesn't... It doesn't make it worse. Yeah, it doesn't make it worse. And I 
I think we're we're often afraid of opening the door to it because we mm. we see it as this unruly thing. Yeah. But my belief is that it's only unruly when it's being pushed away and when we're only ever allowed to glance it from the corner of our vision. Mm. That actually when you make a space for your sadness to come into, it's a it's a known thing. It's something that we actually can understand and that we can be with and work with. It's not terrifying. What's terrifying is the flinch away from it. Hmm. Hmm. I, this is this is my my last question, and it's it's a huge question, and so I'm not asking you to definitively address <laughs> it, but just how would you start to think through the life you've lived and 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 the person you are, and 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 informed by this 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 thinking and writing, reflecting you've been doing on wintering, like how is this all evolving your sense of what it means to be human? Mm. I think I think what it means to be human is to live a life that's deeply cyclical that isn't one path straight path through and and certainly not an uphill path that works its way to a summit where we I don't know someone puts a crown on our head I'm not sure and the angels sing I don't I'm not sure how <laughs> right. we think that's going to work yeah. um but actually, my understanding now as I get older of being human is that my life is fundamentally cyclical, that everything repeats itself, that nothing lasts. And that sounds very nihilistic, but I don't think it is actually. I think that if we can truly grasp and believe in how fleeting this life is, how delicate, how subject to powers beyond our control, that we can begin to set our minds to a better way of living within it that mm. isn't tormenting itself with trying to grasp onto things that cannot be grasped. Mm and trying to assert ourselves in, a, in places that that is completely meaningless to, to do. Right, right. That, that for me is, is humanity, I think. Mm. Mm. <laughs> I wonder if you would read one more passage, which is it's from right, um, it's actually close to what you just read. It's near the end of the book. Um, starting on page 237, right near the end of that page, there were times when I thought I probably couldn't write this. Yeah. And then going to, um, through, the second, through the second paragraph on the next page, um, what mm -hmm. change is coming? Okay. There were times when I thought that I probably couldn't write this, that I wasn't up to it that doing so would bring about some kind of catastrophe of embarrassment just for having the guile to think that I had anything to say on the matter. Once upon a time, this would have engulfed me for in... Oh, sorry. Once upon a time, this would have engulfed me entirely for a season and I would have emerged in a year or two, shaking my head and starting again. But here I am and here it is. The only difference, the only reason I've finished this is experience. I recognised winter. I saw it coming a mile off since you ask, and I looked at it in the eye. I greeted it and let it in. I had some tricks up my sleeve, you see. I've learned them the hard way. When I started to feel the drag of winter, 
I began to treat myself like a favoured child with kindness and love. I assumed my needs were reasonable and that my feelings were signals of something important. I kept myself well fed and I made sure I was getting enough sleep. I took myself for walks in the fresh air and spent time doing things that soothed me. I asked myself, what is this winter all about? I asked myself, what change is coming? Catherine, thank you so much. This was thank just such you. a gift. It's such a gift. And I, I, I think we're going to be putting it out in the early, in the early part of uh, January, which will still oh, be wonderful. winter. <laughs> it, will, it will still definitely be winter then, yeah. yeah. I, I'm, so, I'm just so grateful for your work, and it's lovely to meet you. I actually lived in the UK for a while, so I'm... Oh, I'm, did you? I didn't yeah, know that. So I'm, yeah, and I'm, I'm so familiar with the... With the with well, the English I, aspects I don't of know this, if my um, yeah, you're used to us. <laughs> you're used to our nonsense. Yeah. <laughs> well, you don't have honestly. to translate some of that for me. <laughs> uh oh, <laughs> you're onto us. <laughs> That's yeah. so funny. Oh. Well, I mean, this is one of my favourite podcasts, so um, I oh, have thank just you. loved the idea of being on it, and it's been a bit scary, but I've been. It's just been such a beautiful conversation. So thank you. <laughs> oh, it has been beautiful, and that's thrilling to me. So. I um I hope our our paths will cross again in this crazy yes. crazy world. <laughs> if and, we're ever you know, loud, loud out again, you know. <laughs> yeah. And blessings on your work. I know you're working on a new book. I thought I might talk to you about that, but maybe we'll do that when you later. Oh, um, maybe yeah. when it's clearer in my head. Who knows? Yeah. <laughs> yeah. I I wish you um. I wish you a, I don't know what one wishes, a, a blessed midwinter or a reflective oh, midwinter. That's, yeah, that sounds <laughs> yeah. lovely. I wish that back yeah. to you. That's a wonderful yeah. thing to wish. Oh. I think we need to make some new some new kind of wishes around we these do. things, actually. We do. Oh. But well, yeah, I think, I think a yeah. blessed mis- midwinter is quite a traditional one here, actually. Okay. So that's a, that's a very lovely one. Thank you. <laughs> 